welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast brought to you by TUMI, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. A sustainable mobility transition must serve the needs of all users. Thus, considering social and accessibility dimensions in transport and mobility planning is crucial. With rapid urbanization, more and more people around the world are hit by a phenomenon called transport poverty. For example, many people do not have access to transit services and available transport options may not be affordable. Furthermore, increasing car dependency is becoming a major challenge, not only in terms of climate and air pollution, but also in terms of social and economic exclusion. We are excited to have Dr. Giulio Mattioli on today's episode. Giulio conducts research at the Department of Transport Planning at Technische Universität Dortmund in Germany. He holds a PhD in Urban and Local European Studies from the University of Milano Bicocca and has published numerous journal articles. Giulio will tell us about the intersection between social exclusion and sustainable transport, his research on car dependency and the impacts of transport poverty on diverse geographic locations. So let's listen in. Hi, Giulio. It's so good to have you here today. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I would say, let's not lose any time. And uh, yeah, let's just start with our questions for you, if that is okay. We have a lot today, actually. So to kick off, Julia, your work focuses quite a bit on social exclusion and sustainable transport. Could you provide us with some insight into how these concepts intersect? What are you working on exactly? So, yeah, my main motivation for looking at this intersection now almost 10 years ago when I started working on it in my PhD was the idea that, that, that there is sort of a latent tension between the two, between the social exclusion and sustainable transport, in that if we do live in car-dependent societies, uh, as we do, uh, in most places, having a car sort of provides you with a significant accessibility advantage, but we also live in a climate emergency where we do need to decrease transport emissions very rapidly and that entails reducing levels of car use as well. So the question in the back of my mind when looking at this was like is and still is like how can we achieve a sustainable transition in transport while taking into account of these inequalities? Um, and particularly since these inequalities can easily become barriers to a sustainable transition. And we see that, for example, in the recent debates on fuel prices and taxes and so on. So that's what made it interesting to me. This is really interesting. And bouncing off of that, you said it before, the second fold of your research analyzes many dimensions surrounding car dependency. You said it. Could you explain to us what exactly is car dependency and what causes it? So how would you conceptualize the term? So, yeah, I mean, in a generic understanding, car dependence is also sometimes referred to as automobile dependence. I mean, there are several different terms there, but it's used as a broad term that uh, to point to sustainable transport failure, basically. So uh, the idea that we would like for transport to become more sustainable, but uh, suitable policy initiatives often get blocked or watered down or are considered as not politically or acceptable or not acceptable by the public. Um, so that resistance to change is sort of what we end up calling car dependence. The idea that we cannot really wean ourselves of high levels of car use, that at least not that quickly. Um, 
And in my work, I've tried to conceptualize uh, different dimensions or different facets of car dependence, trying to explore perhaps some of them that have been a bit overlooked to date. And I think one first way to think about this is that there are three main understandings of car dependence. One is car dependence as an attribute of places. So of the built environment, that if you, if you build places around the assumption that everyone has a car, you will build places that require people to have a car to get around and to live normal lives, even if they personally as individuals would not want to. Uh, and that's the case in areas with low density, low population density, low mix of uses and so on. Um, but there's another understanding of car dependence, which is more as an attribute of individuals, and it's pointing to the fact that some people are individually particularly attached to cars and will tend to use them basically in, in, in any case, even when the alternatives are convenient. And I think we all know some people like that. And this is more of a psychological and cultural dimension, uh, which is rather different from the other one. Uh, and then perhaps there's a third one, which is less explored, which is like car dependence as an attribute of everyday practices. So it's the idea that there are certain everyday activities which are particularly car dependent per se, and that would be diff difficult to do with other modes of transport, even if we live in areas that are, you know, even if we live in a large city, uh, even if we uh, we individually have a preference for not using the car, uh, there are still some kinds of activities that are more difficult to do without. Uh, and some of them involve, say, transporting cargo, such as bulky objects or children or pets, but also certain leisure activities that have sort of evolved around the availability of cars. And so such as, say, hiking or skiing or bird watching that are, you know, most people who do those things do them by car. And it's pretty difficult to think, I mean, to think of ways of doing it in, in, in other ways. Uh, so this is like a third um, less explored component, which is the, the car dependence of activities almost. Um, yeah, and, um, and in some of my later work, I've like, tried to use another perspective and looked at the political economy of car dependence, but that's something, maybe something we can talk about later. <laughs> we do. You said, or you talked about everyday practice. So if I'm not one of the skiing people, where do we see it? Can you give us a concrete example when we look in our cities where car dependency applies? Yeah, I mean, uh, what we found in a study that we carried out a couple of years ago was that, for example, people buying uh, shopping for furniture would tend to do it by car. So if you go to Ikea, you would typically do it by car, even if you can get things delivered at home. But, you know, if you're shopping for something bulky, uh, you'd rather do it by car. Or if you're disposing of waste, uh, you often do it by car. Um, and even we found out that um, there's a certain percentage of people who use the car to walk their dogs. So basically, even if they could, say, walk their dog in proximity to their home and just, you know, get out of the, of the door and, and walk their dog there, uh, they prefer to travel by car a couple of kilometers to a place that is perhaps nicer for the dog to run. And, and this sounds a bit silly, but 
given the amount of dogs that there is and the you know the frequency with which you need to walk your dog it does account for quite a lot of um kilometers at the end of the day and emissions Yeah. And what implications does that have? From your point of view, what are, for example, socioeconomic factors that are creating car-dependent societies? Yeah, so here maybe I can tell you a bit more about our work on the what we've called the political economy of car dependence. And there we have highlighted five main factors. And one of them is the automotive industry. So there's like sort of the production side of the equation. Because we tend to focus a lot in transport studies on consumption, but you know all, all those cars come from somewhere. They are being produced. And the automotive industry is one of the largest and most important industries in, in our economy. And it's got a lot of influence on, on policy. Um, and because of how it's structured, it sort of needs to keep producing growing amounts of ever larger cars in order to stay profitable. And we tend to see that in the recent SUV boom, for example. So that's some, definitely something that's driving car dependence. Uh, and the second element is um, car infrastructure. Uh, this includes all kinds of infrastructures that support car use, including you know, road, not just roads, but also the availability of free parking, for example, or the fact that much of the road space is allocated primarily to cars. And all of these things tend to be sort of taken for granted nowadays after decades of, of you know, um, of motorization, but they are not, they should not be taken for granted to some extent. Certainly things like free parking are hard, hard to defend on a rational basis. Um, and, and then a third element is land use. And, and we com I commented on this before, but maybe something that it's not often discussed is that, When we tend to discuss urban sprawl as a form of land use that is wasteful in many ways, you know, like wasteful of space, of energy, wasteful of materials. But to some extent, I think this is a feature, not a bug in some ways, in that urban sprawl sort of creates demand for certain key industries, including the automotive industry. And that can act as a form of economic stimulus, or, or at least it's not, you know, it's not, it's in the interest of certain economic actors. Um, it's not a total irrationality as it's often made to be. I mean, when I read about urban sprawl, it's often presented as, you know, it's, this is totally irrational. Why, why, why did we even do that? But I do think there's some sort of economic rationality behind it. And then the, the fourth element is um, we talked about public transport and the way it's set up and uh, that it's often uh, sometimes not organized in ways that can provide a competitive alternative to car use. And in, and in order to do that, you need to have at least some degree of public control, which is not, it's not the case everywhere. It's not the case, for example, in many countries in the global south or in the UK even. And then the, the, the very last point is about uh, the cultural aspects that have to do with the car. And there's a whole range of material and symbolic factors that contribute to people being attached to car use. Uh, including, for example, the fact that some people prefer to isolate themselves within the car um, by sharing space with strangers, uh, which is clearly a factor that has gained even more importance since COVID, as we know. This is really interesting. I would like to stress on your last two points, because I can imagine there are so many consequences if you, for example, don't own an own car um, or you are dependent on public transport 
that is not yeah, created perfectly and works for you in your everyday life. And there's a lot of research on transport poverty. Maybe you could explain to us what that is exactly. So yeah, again, transport poverty is a term that is used in a very, as a sort of very broad umbrella term to refer to all sorts of inequalities related to transport. And that includes not just, you know, things like not having access to transport, such as not having a car, not having access to good public transport, uh, but also things like not being able to afford the cost of, of, of uh, transport, even if you do have access, um, even things about, uh, such as um, questions related to time poverty, for example. So being able to use transport, but having to travel as much, so much that you've got little time left to do other things. And, and even things such as the negative um, impacts of transport and how they are yeah, inequitably distributed among different groups. So like cars produce like air pollution and noise and, and, and things like that. And, and these are not equally distributed. So some of us are much more exposed to those than others. Yeah, that was actually my next question. Um, do you believe there are any differences in how transport poverty uh, impacts different geographic locations, for example. Yes, uh, absolutely. So in, in places where car dependence is more intense, such as, you know, peri-urban and rural areas, most problems of transport poverty are more pronounced. And so if you don't have a car in that kind of area, it is a very serious problem that you will find it very difficult to get around and, and to access services and opportunities. Uh, and this entails the risk of social exclusion. But even if you do have a car in those areas but are on low incomes, you might struggle with the cost of fuel and be vulnerable to fuel price increases with little option to switch to other modes. And in large cities, on the other hand, these problems are less pronounced, but you do have more people there who live without cars. And if you live in a city without cars, you are still a little bit disadvantaged in terms of accessibility as compared to someone you know who can't still access the public transport there. But has a car as well. Um, and, and in both type of areas, you have people who spend lots of time commuting and perhaps have little time left for uh, other other activities. And that can be because they live in a city and, and, and spend a lot of time traveling by public transport or because they live far away from their work and spend a lot of time driving. And, and if, when it comes to the inequalities in the burdens and the negative impacts, uh, these tend to be uh, more pronounced in urban areas, which are more densely populated, and especially for those people who live next to big roads, who tend to be disproportionately low income. So overall, it's a complex picture where you have like multiple inequalities, multiple dimensions to take into account, and all of them sort of have some kind of... Mm -hmm. And are there any differences, for example, within gender or age groups? Yeah, gender is definitely uh, an important dimension in that uh, women, for example, have more complex activity, tend to have more complex activity patterns because they have, uh, they tend to take respons more responsibility for childcare uh, and that can lead them in some circumstances to uh, rely more on cars. But at the same time, there's also evidence that they, when, when there is just one car within a household, it, they often, though not always, uh, women tend to not to have access to it because it goes to the man. 
um, or to the husband, and, and also women uh, are more wary of using public transport because of safety reasons or to walk alone at night, things like that. So there is definitely an important uh, gender uh, component to these things. Um, and other people have their own um, sort of issues related to, you know, um, poor air health and um, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And when I currently look into the newspaper, uh, we see that fuel prices are rising like crazy, so intensely. Do you see that as an opportunity to transition away from car-centric societies right now? Or do you see it as yeah, a social crisis, especially for poor populations? I think it's both, really. So for from a sustainable transport and climate perspective, we do need to reduce levels of car use. And, and, and besides other things such as electrifying the vehicle fleet, we do need to reduce car use. Uh, and one of the, of the main policy instruments to do that is obviously increasing the cost of using internal combustion engine vehicles uh, through things like road pricing or CO2 taxes or fuel taxes. So I think the sort of discussions, controversial discussions that we're having now because of fuel prices soared as a result of war, uh, we really should be having them anyway because of climate change. So uh, in a way, um, it's, it's sort of an in inevitable discussions that, that we're having. Uh, on the other hand, higher fuel prices are certainly a serious issue for some sectors of the population that uh, combine low income with high levels of car use and car dependence. And in my research, I have tried to quantify how many they are and who they are. And, and my estimate, cutting a long story short, is that it's around five to 10% of households. Um, so it's not few, but it's, I also think it's not as many as it's often implied in, in, in public debates either. Um, so my opinion is that we need to find ways to help this group and make sure that they are not, you know, <laughs> um, too badly affected. But we should also keep in mind that there are as many, if not more, low-income people who do not rely on cars and are not vulnerable to fuel price increases, typically because they don't even own one. So, for example, in Germany, up to 50% of households in the lowest income groups do not own a car at all. So, And these are often not part of these discussions when we're talking about the fuel prices and how that will affect the poor. We tend to ignore the fact that actually for half of the poor, that will not be an issue at all. Yeah. And do you have any concrete policy recommendations to, for example, reduce car dependency for more sustainable and inclusive mobility system that you could share with us? Yeah, so I think in a way there is a very strong consensus within the sustainable transport research community on, on what needs to be done about this. And, and this package of policies would include using land use policies to promote sustainable spatial development patterns. So building settlements in ways that make it possible to have decent levels of accessibility by alternative modes. And second, expanding the provision of alternative modes um, for to reallocate road and street space away from cars and towards other modes. What we see is starting to happen in, in several cities in Europe, actually. Um, 
and also using fiscal and pricing instruments, things like road pricing and CO2 pricing, uh, to make sure that prices are a bit fairer towards um, alternative modes. And, and, and I, by the way, I was at a meeting at the International Transport Forum a couple of years ago on exactly this topic, so reversing car dependence in cities. Uh, it, was, it was a roundtable with some of the main international experts um, on, on this question. And, and, and the funny thing was that at some point there was a moment of frustration from some of the older people there, like... Uh, like we know these things, we've been saying them for years. It's almost boring by now. You know, the problem is that they are not being implemented. I mean, at least not in a uh, not as a package. There is no there is no place where they are being implemented uh, all together. And I think um, if I if I can add a personal reflection, if I think that reflects an, an underestimation of the political economy component of it. So uh, that even if, if we have these recipes, there are actually many interests that uh, benefit from and support the car dependent status quo. And so we, we should expect some kind of backlash when, when we're pursuing policies to reverse car dependency. Um, and so in that sense, I think we should perhaps start to think about sustainable transport policy as something more political and controversial that we have tended to think about it to date. We are often presented as something technocratic, which would be, you know, objective solutions in, in the interest of everyone for the common good. Uh, but I think we should look at it more as other areas of policies, such as, I don't know, welfare policy or pensions, where we, you know, we don't expect all political sides to agree on it. Uh, we, we, we allow for different political orientations and and different sets of values to be there and to compete. And I think there's nothing wrong about that. And perhaps we should think about transport policy more, more in that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Julio. We are already at our last question. And I would be interested in your view of maybe an example where such policy recommendations worked really well. Do you have any city or any project in mind where, yeah, that, that we could use as a yeah, best practice example to move away from car dependency? Yeah, I don't think there is one, actually. I will, <laughs> <laughs> I will refuse to give an answer in a way because I think that that's one of the main problems perhaps in the debate sometimes is that there, there's this idea that there is some place somewhere that has gotten this right, right? And I don't think there is. I think there are a lot of like best practices in, in, in specific areas, you know, perhaps cities that have done very well in terms of pricing or in terms of, uh, you know, taking space away from, from, from cars or in terms of electrifying the vehicle fleet or in terms of reducing sprawl. But typically, when you when you look at one of these examples, then uh, pretty soon you find that they are doing something counterproductive in other areas. You know what I mean? Like uh, um, I remember um, there being a lot of um, a lot of hype about Oslo making the city center car free a couple of years ago. Uh, and then we had a presentation by someone from Oslo who was saying, yes, sure, we've done that in a couple of city streets in the city center. But at the same time, we're building a motorway, you know, around the city. No one's talking about that internationally. Um, so I think it's, it's very hard to find a city that consistently has sort of applied all of this for, for, for a long period of time. 
and 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 maybe what we should do is to look at the at the best practices and trying to to learn from them and um uh, wherever we find them actually yeah without thinking that there is some place that uh, has gotten this right because uh I, I don't think anyone has yeah thank you for being so clear about that um i think it's really important to stress or to underline such facts actually and i i think this was really insightful thank you julio uh, i think your research work is of high importance and um yeah i like that you are so uh, that you are so opinionated about it so thank you for sharing your experiences uh, with us today it was really really great talking to you thank you was great being there thank you all the best for you speak to you soon bye thank you julio for sharing your perspective on social exclusion and transport we understand the need to consider social dimensions for a sustainable mobility transition we hope you all enjoyed today's episode as always thanks for tuning in and hear you next time